You're listening to For the Record, a Registrar podcast. I'm Daniel Barkowitz, Assistant Vice President for Financial Aid and Veterans Affairs at Valencia College, and this is Campus Partners, the Office of Financial Aid. Hello, and welcome to For the Record, a Registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna. As we all know by now, the Registrar's Office is the steward of all student academic data. As such, we have a responsibility to ensure that those data are used appropriately. One of the most common ways that student enrollment data is used is in the processing of financial aid for our students. That makes the Office of Financial Aid one of those key partners on our campuses. Strangely enough, I have found that many registrars don't know all that much about how financial aid works. And so today, we'll be talking with Daniel Barkowitz, Assistant Vice President for Financial Aid and Veterans Affairs at Valencia College in Florida, to talk about ways that the registrar's office and the financial aid offices can work together. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking some time to chat with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Thank you. To kick things off, would you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and your experience with financial aid, and then also tell us a little bit about Valencia College? Sure. So uh, I've been working in college financing for about 30-something years. Uh, Like many folks in financial aid, I started actually as sort of a work-study student. I was a summer employee at a loan company doing loan uh, applications for parents and student loans. Uh, was hired at Boston College as Assistant Director of Financial Aid, and then went to work for MIFA, the Mass Educational Financing Authority in Massachusetts. Spent a lot of my career in Boston, working for colleges and universities in Boston. Uh, I was uh, Director of Financial Aid at MIT in Cambridge, and also spent some time working uh, actually on the loan side, as I talked about, on the financial aid side, I was also a systems consultant doing some work for Sierra Cedar, uh, helping institutions of higher education figure out the system side of financial aid. Sorry, my dog is making noise. <laughs> we, yes. we welcome all of the uh, four-legged friends. Well, thank you. So I joined Valencia College fairly recently in, in 2017, and Valencia is a great place. My, uh, it's, it's a large place and probably a school that many nationwide don't know about. We're the community college of record for the Orlando Kissimmee metro area in Florida. So we have in a year about 65,000 students who attend our our eight campuses. And my office, uh, we process, we're an office of about 45, 46 staff, and we process uh, a number of applications every year, over $80 million annually of Pell Grant, a fair volume of, of student loans and other financial aid as well. Fantastic. That is impressive. I saw you speak at the Empower Ed conference. I think the last thing that happened before everything shut down for COVID. And I was impressed with you there. I appreciated your focus on your staff and on the way with which you encourage your staff to really find the love in the financial aid process. And so I'm glad that we were able to connect and have you chat with us here today. Thank you, John. 
I remember that conference well as well. It was the last time I traveled, uh, and, it, and I can't believe it's almost been a year at this point since we. I know. I know. Together. Yep, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the ways that the pandemic has affected the work that you and your team are doing uh, momentarily. But I also wanted to say that you're the past president of FASFA. You did I'm that well. That's, <laughs> I'm assuming that's the financial aid officers professional organization similar to ACRO. Is that that's correct? right. So, so in the financial aid world, just like ACRO, we have a nationwide uh, financial aid administrators organization called NASFA. And I've done some work that I'll talk about in a second for NASFA. Um, our regional associations, we have six regional associations, and I've done some work for our regional associations as well, and then state associations. So I'm the past president for Florida's association, which is FASFA, not to be confused with FAFSA, which right. is complicated. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then for NASFA, I actually am the inaugural chair, uh, now past chair, for the Certified Financial Aid Administrators Project. This is a project which actually has achieved a national certification standard for financial aid administrators to uh, earn and, and maintain. Fantastic. So I have worked in five different registrar's offices during my higher education career, and it's really only in the last several years that my responsibilities have led me to become more familiar with the relationship between the Office of the University Registrar and the Office of Financial Aid. And, and I what is, still what a shame if I could interrupt. Yes. And I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert by any stretch of anyone's imagination. And so for my benefit and for the listener's benefit, would you take us through sort of the overall process for the financial aid office? What does your annual cycle look like? Uh, maybe from a 10,000 foot view. Sure. And I'll start by saying, you know, there, there are two main relationships that are key and fundamental to a successful financial aid office, and that is the, main, the, the maintenance of the relationship with the bursars or billing office, and the second is the relationship with the registrar's office. So to me, you know, in all of the roles I've had in financial aid, I've, I've really focused on maintaining those, those relationships because they are the most important thing to make sure that students are serviced. So a, a standard calendar for financial aid, you know, <laughs> the challenge of financial aid is we're always working in three calendar years at the same time. Uh, and that, that can be a bit complicated. And I know in the registrar's office, you're doing the same because you're planning for future years. But we're always running the current year, planning the next year, and reconciling and cleaning up the last year. So typically, a year for financial aid will start with the launch of the FAFSA in October of the, um, of the previous year. So there's usually system setup that takes place. There's work to get our calendars uh, in sync, to get our settings in sync. And then students can, car- can start applying for financial aid as early as October 1 of the year preceding the launch of that academic year. So our cycle starts that far in advance in terms of processing applications, communicating with students and families, encouraging students to apply. It runs up to a peak as we move into the summer and really get ready for the launch of the fall semester. And we're dispersing and processing aid, depending upon the cycle. Many, many colleges might choose to have summer as a header or summer as a trailer. At Valencia, summer is a, a trailer to our academic year. So we're processing aid fall, spring, summer. And then we're closing out the year into September, October, and really you know, working with the auditors to do an annual audit into January, February, and March 
of the following year. So it's a lengthy process, but, um, and, and as I said, you're always maintaining multiple years at the same time. Right. And just for clarification, the FAFSA is the Federal Application for Free, no wait, it's You're the close. Free Application for Federal Student, student Aid? That's right. So FAFSA stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid. It is the main application form to qualify for federal financial aid. It's used at every college in the country. Um, other colleges or other institutions may have their own application for their own funds, but FAFSA is the only application form for federal financial aid. And it's used if you're a parent applying for college, if you're a student applying for college, a graduate student, an undergraduate student, really anyone looking for federal support for their financing will complete a FAFSA every year that they're attending uh, post-secondary education. And those are for Title IV funds? I'm impressed, yes. So yeah, Title IV is right. So Title IV... Uh, Many folks outside of financial aid wouldn't recognize that, but Title IV refers to a chapter or a title in the Higher Education Act of 1965 as amended. So Title IV is the title that really focuses on federal programs. Uh, Lots of people don't know this, but the history of financial aid is that it started really with the Perkins loan, what was at that point the National Defense Student Loan, uh, evolved into SEOG and which is Supplemental Education Opportunity Grant, and then the Pell Grant. So the Pell Grant is actually the more recent of the core foundational programs. But all of that is part of Title IV of the Higher Education Act. Nice. And I appreciate the pause for clarification. All of this is great information. Don't be too impressed, though, because one of the things that I have found bewildering are some of the nuances with the return to title funds, and that's the Star Warsian R2-T4 process. And so maybe we could talk through what is required there, how does the Office of Financial Aid rely on registrar's office or student data more broadly in order to adhere to those regulations? So the R2-T4, right, not to be confused, you call it Star Warsian, not to be confused with R2-D2, yes, the R2-T4 stands for Return to Title IV. Um, It's not a droid in some weird Star Wars spinoff. What is Return to Title IV? So there's a premise. I guess we should start at sort of, again, the 10,000-foot view. Sure. The beginning is a great place to start. Yes. There's a premise that students don't earn their financial aid the first day of a semester. So to keep things simple, we'll talk about a semester-based program. But uh, the presumption is that a student earns their financial aid as they attend and continue to attend the semester, up to the 60% point. So once a student reaches the 60% point of a term, at that point, they've earned 100% of their financial aid. But if they're absent a day, then they might be at 59%. They only get to retain 59% of the aid that they've uh, received for that semester. So the concept of R2-T4, or return to Title IV, is that any student who withdraws prior to that 60% point, the unearned financial aid has to be returned because it has not been earned by the student. Now, that's regardless of your own institutional refund policy. You may choose, and we may choose as an institution, that after the first week of classes, you're obligated to pay 100% of tuition. The government doesn't care, frankly. The R2-T4 program still exists 
you still have to return the unearned aid for that student. Got it. There is that distinction between, you know, the ad drop period for students may be different, possibly linked to the tuition liability deadlines, uh, which also may vary by institution. And I'm glad that you pointed out that that is not linked in any way to, or may be linked to the return to Title IV funds calculations. How are you, how does one keep track of who has achieved 60%, who has not, and then what happens when someone does not achieve that 60%? Right. And here's where, here's where the relationship between the, the registrar's office and the financial aid office is so critical. And I'm going to divide this, Doug, into two sections, sort of the official withdrawal and the unofficial withdrawal, because each has its own complications. Yep. So at an institution where there's not attendance taking, and we can talk about those institutions later, but let's say you're not a mandatory attendance taking institution, uh, it's important to understand that when a student does indicate, I'm going to go through a withdrawal, I'm going to withdraw from all my classes, that that information get passed in a timely fashion to the financial aid office. Because once the student turns in notification, there's a date of determination of the student's intent to withdraw, a clock starts to tick, and the financial aid office has a limited window to make a calculation and return funds based on that date of determination. So that's the first piece is really, you know, uh, having a mechanism uh, to communicate that. So at, at Valencia, why well, I should say what also complicates things is it's not withdrawing from one class uh, and keeping two others. It's withdrawing from every class. So I know from a registrarial perspective, the focus often is class-based or individual course-based or individual section-based. But for financial aid, for R2T4, it's really about the entire enrollment. Has the student ceased enrollment at the institution in full? And so at Valencia, we have a great partnership with our registrar's office where there's a a weekly report that's generated to identify students who have now formally withdrawn from all of their coursework. We ask our faculty, if possible, if they have records, to provide a date of last academic activity so we can not only find out when the date of determination is, but also when the date of last academically related activity is to figure out that 60% point. And again, if a student's enrolled in multiple classes, it'll be the last of their dates of academic activity that become important. So that's the official withdrawal. That notification comes, we go through a, a internal calculation, we send the funds back and notify the student if they owe the institution money as a result of our uh, return to Title IV. The complication also extends to what uh, the government calls unofficial withdrawals. And this takes a little bit of, um, of explanation. You know, folks may not know, and I, I always found this amusing, but when I was at MIT, uh, MIT used to have a grading system of A, B, C, D, E, and F. Uh, A's in MIT carry a 5.0 GPA. Uh, the reason for that is E carried a 1.0, and that was an earned F. So you tried, but you just failed at, in the course. Um, <laughs> I always thought that was quite quite humorous, right? They don't do that anymore. They still have the 5.0 GPA, though, as, as, a, as an anachronism, but they don't have the E grade any longer. So in the, in the concept of the federal government, it's important for them to understand the difference between the earned and unearned F. So they, the government says, if a student just simply stops attending all of their classes, 
and gets Fs for the term, that's an unofficial withdrawal. That student dropped out. Even though you didn't have a formalized withdrawal notification, we still need to process a return to Title IV for that student if right. all of their, their departure um, occurred from all of their classes. And they have a combination of all Fs or Fs and Ws. It's important, again, in that situation to notify financial aid so they can look at that student and, and determine, did this student uh, drop out or withdraw unofficially? And that brings us back to the difference between an, an attendance-taking institution and a non-attendance-taking institution. And that is an actual designation in the federal regulations. And if you are designated as an in, uh, attendance-taking institution, what are the additional regulatory requirements or reporting requirements to the federal government that come along with that. So great point. If you're an attendance-taking institution, and, and be careful, because even if no one externally requires you to take attendance, but you require your faculty to take attendance, then you're an attendance-taking institution. Right. It's a very fine line where if you even sort of look like an institution that has a policy that says you must take attendance, the federal government assumes that, oh, you're an attendance-taking institution. Correct. And I'll come back there. There are periods in the semester that you're going to want to always take attendance. We can come back to that. So the, the no-show period, for for instance, and I'll talk about that in a second. But Exactly. But the importance of that attendance-taking designation is once you're determined to be attendance-taking, then the presumption is you should immediately know when a student stops attending a class and your window of notification drops significantly. So as opposed to, say, having 60 days to take action, you, you might have only 14 days because the presumption is once a student stops attending, you should know that information. You're taking attendance and your faculty needs to be able to identify that student in a very short window. So that, that is distinguished. And here's where I want to talk about no-show. That's distinguished from uh, having particular periods in a semester where you mandate that faculty take attendance. So for example... It's a requirement as well for federal aid that a student not just register for classes, but actually sit in the class, <laughs> believe it or right. not, right? Virtually or, or, or physically, but actually attend the class. That's crazy talk. Isn't that insane? So <laughs> as a result, institutions are mandated to have a no-show process where faculty or staff or you know, instructors can let you know this student registered but never attended and therefore shouldn't receive financial aid for this particular class. Now, having that requirement isn't requiring attendance taking. It's just checking in for that first period of class. Right. It's a roster verification process in, in essence. Correct. Are there, are there students who are not attending who registered? Are there students who are attending who are not registered? That has been a problem at several of the institutions where I have worked, where students couldn't get into the class, but then they go attend the class from the beginning. And then at the end of the class, they want a grade, but they were never registered in it. So um, it's a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it becomes more complicated, again, when it comes time to sort of process the aid for a class you attended but didn't actually register for. Yep, exactly. I want to shift gears for just a second and let's acknowledge that this past year has been pretty crazy. How has the pandemic changed the way that you and your team provide services to your students? 
So I'll, I'll tell you, first of all, I'm sitting at home today. Uh, and I'm, I'm working from my kitchen, literally at my kitchen island table. Uh, and I have been here, it feels like, for a year. It's almost a year. Uh, we, we as a, as a school, went on spring break in March of 2020. We left on a Friday, uh, had plans to be away for a week. We closed to faculty and staff during spring break as well. And then had planned to return back to campus the Monday after. And during that week, you know, we, we, we knew that, that there, were, there was this thing called coronavirus working its way through the system. Uh, but between the time we left uh, and the spring break, the decision was made not to return. And we have not been back to campus since. So we've been off offering all of our services remotely for the last year. Now, that said, there are some classes that have to meet in person. So our law enforcement academy and other you know, other practical lab classes have been meeting, but my entire staff, the registrar's office staff, we've all been working remotely. So even the, the core nature of work has changed. We were very much a drop-in center. We had a one-stop uh, approach that we call the answer center, where students could visit us and get their admission question, their registrar question, their graduation question, their, um, their grade question, their financial aid and billing question, advising, all answered in one stop. That has now moved online into a Zoom-style uh, one-stop center where we have breakout rooms where students can meet individually with a assigned advisor to help them through. So our service delivery model has shifted, but it really hasn't changed. We're still trying to offer the same level of customer support and service that we did when we were in person. So that's been one, that's been one big adjustment is just you know simply how do you disperse you know, over $150 million, which we do in a year, of financial aid virtually uh, when no one's actually in the office and we're all working from our laptops from home. So that's one question. And we figured that out. The other is what is... <laughs> good, good. Yeah. I was going to ask. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The other is what does it mean for students and families? And, you know, this has really been a unique, I would say, time in financial aid and a college enrollment compared to the other crises that we've weathered. So, you know, in my time in financial aid, I've lived through several recessions and, you know, the Great Recession and other timeframes where the economic situation for families upended. Uh, and, in, and typically in those times, I would talk about financial aid as sort of anti-cyclical business. The worse the economy got, the busier we got. What's interesting is to watch this, this cycle as higher education enrollment hasn't necessarily kept pace uh, with what you might have expected in previous economic downturns. So some of that is, I think, family nervousness of online classes. Some of that is concern about their own physical safety, I'm sure. And we've done what we can. I'll say we've been very lucky at Valencia. We've maintained or grown enrollment throughout all the terms up to this point. So we have, we have bucked the trend uh, that I know a lot of our peers in community colleges have felt of of loss of enrollment we've been able to maintain. But for families, we've also really been partnering with them to look at creative ways to help them finance. So that include that included the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund that came out of the CARES grant yes. and now is coming out of this new Coronavirus Response Act. Um, also includes helping families navigate special circumstance appeals if there's an income reduction through something we call professional judgment in financial aid. 
and really working with families on a one-on-one basis to help them figure out how to pay for the cost of college. Nice. Can we talk about the cost of college for a moment? Of course. Um, as, as you know, it has gone up. And the funding from states, from the feds, has gone down per student overall over the last many years. In your opinion, what's going to happen with the cost of attendance in the United States? How will students finance their educations moving forward? So a couple of thoughts about that. One of them is it's true that federal financial aid has not kept up pace. And really, who's been making up the difference? It's been institutions of higher education. Uh, Many folks don't know, and I'll, I'll thank the College Board for their annual trends publication, which I find very useful. Uh, but 28% of the financial aid that's available nationwide is in the form of institutional scholarship and grant money. That compares to about 14% that's coming from the federal government in terms of their grant uh, participation. So it's almost double what the federal government's putting in is coming in the form of private institutions. I often hear the, um, you know, the call that institutions should have some kind of equity or ownership in student outcomes. We do, because we're putting a large amount of, of institutional resource behind that student effort. That's mm-hmm. true, by the way, whether you're at a private, not-for-profit institution, or a public flagship institution, or a public two-year institution. We have a significant amount of funding that we use to help students as well whether that comes from donors or from the state or from what we call a financial aid fee, which is a rotating fund that we use to help our students as well. So one way that institutions have replied or responded is by trying to increase their own contribution. I'll also say, you know, we hear a lot about the student loan catastrophe, and it is true that students are borrowing in part more than they need to or more than they should. But I would also say over time, the percentage of the sort of national pie that goes to student loans has actually been decreasing. It's about a third of the current mechanism by which students and families pay for college. It was as high as 50%, uh, not not 20 years ago. So while costs have increased, student borrowing has not necessarily increased at the same level as costs have, although I know there's been great fear about that. And do you think that's a result of the coverage of the student loan debt volume? Or do you think it's better education? Do you think it is what? I think it's both. I mean, again, at our institution, we have a number of factors we put in at Valencia to make sure students don't borrow more than they need. And that includes upfront counseling. That's an annual debt letter that we send to students telling them how much they've borrowed. So they're always brought up to speed. Uh, we, we ask students to accept their loans. We offer them loans. We don't accept them on their behalf. And I know the, the federal government's adding uh, in the coming year something called the annual student loan acknowledgement, where students will have to once a year log into the federal system and say, yes, I acknowledge I've already borrowed this much, and here's what my estimated repayment's going to look like. So you know, th- there is in part uh, a focus on education but to go back to your question, there, there will be a, a breaking point. I mean, I, I remember when I went to college, which you know was in the 80s, I remember late 80s, early 90s, I remember thinking how expensive $40,000 a year seemed 
for education at the top level. And I know now that you know our, our most expensive institutions have cost of attendance that are that are approaching or exceeding eighty thousand a year, so almost double that. And there has to come a breaking point. The question will be, what can institutions do to manage their costs, and what can we look to the federal government to do to assist us in covering families' costs? So there is a need for increased federal in- involvement and investment as well. All of that is staggering. I have two children. I have a 14-year-old son and 11-year-old daughter. And so forecasting ahead how much money we need for them to go to college is daunting to think about. So from a personal perspective, it's nice to hear that the total loan amount is going down, but that the costs are staggering still. Right. And I'll I'll agree. I have two kids who went, one who's in college now, who's a junior, and one who's graduated. And, you know, part of it is that while student debt may be maintaining, we're paying off parent debt. So, you know, we had resource to help assist. We've been saving since they were young and we still needed additional financing. So, you know, part of the question is whether parents can expect to contribute everything they need to within the course of a year or whether they need to take some investment in their students' education as well. So let's get back to something a little lighter. <laughs> I was encouraged to hear you say that the registrar's office was one of the critical relationships that you have with campus partners. I did note, though, that you listed us second after the bursar's office. Oh, that was not that was not important. <laughs> that was an order of alphabet. Let's just say ah, that. Yeah. perfect, perfect. Yes. So. Can you talk a little bit more about the ways that you work with your registrar's office currently? Uh, What are the ways that you would benefit from additional support from your registrar's office, if any? And and what would that look like in practice? So thanks. I I will say um, your timing is ideal. Uh, I am actually preparing a session for our regional association called It's All Academic, conversations with a registrar. So we're actually having, we've been exploring this, my colleague and I now, about how our relationship dovetails. And we're presenting this session in the coming weeks at SASFA's uh, annual conference. So I'm looking forward to That is the Southern Association of Financial, you see, I I can learn. The the alphabet (laughs) soup, that's right. Uh, So it's interesting you ask, I guess I'll start with the governance question, right? One of the challenges that I think we face together is that we have separate governance models. So, you know, we are beholden to the federal government in a way that many registrar's offices are simply not. So at least a public institution, my registrar colleague is very responsive and responsible for state statute and state structures. All of our programs are administered by the state, set up by the state, our curricular processes are. And of course, all of us are are, uh, responsible to our accrediting agencies, but we have we have the granddad of accreditors, if you will, and that is federal student aid. So often, what will happen is that the guidance we'll get from federal student aid may appear to co- contradict what our state is saying, or what the accreditor is saying, or what our registrar's office is intending to to do. So part of it is making sure that we have open lines of communication when those situations arise, and having really open and honest conversations about what is possible, what is feasible, and what is risky. And those are great conversations to, to begin with. I, I would start there. So 
you know, my, my approach has always been to be forthright and uh, disclosing. And where there are issues that we can bend, let's bend. Um, but I don't want to break. So that's, you know, that's always part of the conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of those critical things that you sort of feel out as the process goes along and you, you get more familiar with some of the federal regulations as a registrar related to financial aid and being educated on some of the issues where you're like, oh, that that is a real hard stop versus hmm, that is a thing that my financial aid office would prefer that I do. So, right. So yeah. calendaring, calendaring is a great example, right? So, you know, do you have overlapping dates between terms? Do you Are have, they substantially similar? That's correct. Do you have uh, modules or parts of term? My favorite, there's also a nomenclature problem. So um, I remember the first time I had a conversation with my registrar partner, it wasn't at this institution, but at a previous institution where there were parts of term. And I said to, to this partner, I said to her, you know, remember that if a student gra- gets a grade in one module class, but withdraws from a later part of term, I have to call them withdrawal for the term. And she said to me, what do you mean? They got an A in a course. They're not a withdrawal. And I said, <laughs> well, yeah, they are. Right? So you know, even the conversation about what is a withdrawal is, is, can, can actually uh, find unexpected terrain. Indeed. And when those... I don't want to characterize them as miscommunications, but that's probably a generous way of saying when those miscommunications happen uh, or when those misunderstandings happen, what is your method for bringing the registrar up to speed on again, like how, what is a have to do versus a, what is a want to do? Right. And so what I'll often do is pull out the section from the federal student aid handbook or from the appropriate law and we'll, we'll analyze it together. So, you know, I'm, I'm very, uh, one thing I learned in financial aid early on, Doug, is it's not what you know. It's uh, when you learn how to find what you don't know. Yes. So I'm very conversant with going to the Federal Student Aid Handbook and finding the reference that I need. And in that moment, we'll sit down and look at the reference together. And together, we'll draw inference. I also find that it's very helpful, and I'm sure you find this, on the registrar side, to have colleagues who you trust in the field, who you can email and say, I'm struggling with this question. How do you handle it? That's true, I think, of any part of the, of the higher education uh, architecture or landscape, but especially true for those of us that are externally regulated. To have some other friend or colleague who likely has gone through this before, that you can reach out and ask for advice. Yeah. And that's one of the real powers within the state and regional associations and our national associations, having those networks of colleagues who have been around for a while, who have seen a bunch of things, who know a bunch of things, and who know a bunch of people. Again, it's not necessarily always what you know at the time that you're asked a question. It's can you find someone who can help you with it, or can you find the resource that will educate you about it? And so that's a great plug, I think, for involvement with our state and regionals, both from a financial aid perspective and from a registrar perspective. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's curious, too, that ACRO is registrars and admissions officers, but there isn't a comparable registrars and financial aid officers. No, um, no there isn't. And so maybe we need to do a little bit more bridge building between those two groups from an official standpoint, from a professional development standpoint. And that might be uh, a labor of love, 
But I think that overall, down the line, it will help these lines of communication, just networking, things like that. So I'll share with you, um, when I, I did some consulting work for a, a very large public institution in the Midwest, and um, they had set up a, uh, really at the institutional level, not at the, at the associational level, at the institutional level, they had set up, recognizing the bureaucracy inherent in all of our processes, they had set up a cut through the bureaucracy group where they had a bursar representative, an admissions representative, a registrar representative, and a financial aid representative who met on a biweekly basis to just solve student problems. So they would literally pull the four folks in a room, they'd pull up their SIS, and they'd look and say, what's going on with the student? Let's see if we can solve any issues. And I love that concept. I also love the name of the group because, again, it was Bursar Admissions Registrar Financial Aid. They refer to themselves as the BARF group. (laughs) Because sometimes the problem got so bureaucratic, that was the only response was to send it to the BARF team. So that, you know. (laughs) That it may be a model. I'm not sure if that'll work at a nationwide level, but it may be a model that institutions can find as a way to sort of make you know level connections among those disparate silos. It's really important to have open lines of communication. Absolutely. And as a public institution at Mason, we would add the domicile appeals in there so that it could be barfed. No, oh, that's lovely. I love that. <laughs> Do you have suggestions for working with your financial aid office? If you switch pivot for a moment and um, imagine yourself in the registrar's office, um, are there suggestions for working with financial aid uh, broadly that you would provide to registrars or registrar adjacent people who are listening? Sure. I I think the first is to to begin by understanding that we are academic year driven, not term driven. I know, you know, our cycle is really one of the academic year in financial aid. So to the extent that as a registrar colleague, I can try to telegraph where the academic year is heading, that's very helpful. I know, and I know that's an oversimplification. Many things at the registrar's office are academic year based, uh, but there are, there is a term driven calendar as well. So, you know, to the extent that I can forecast where things are coming for future terms, it's important to try to get that information shared. Um, I think secondly, Really, it is about forming colleagues and connections. Sometimes the structures don't allow that. So if you're not reporting to the same manager, that can feel somewhat difficult to try to get to a regular open line of communication. We sit at Valencia in an enrollment management model underneath a student affairs vice president. So I feel very lucky in that my colleagues in admissions, registrar, graduation, um, we're always talking to each other constantly. But if you're not, try to find a, an informal or formal way to try to open those lines of communication because when you don't want to reach out to your colleague in financial aid is when you have a problem. You want to have at least that existing relationship and those open lines of communication to to draw on when necessary. Right on. Anything else before we uh, shut things down for today? No, just thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, feel free if anyone wants to reach me. You're you know you're welcome to. I have a couple of ways to be in touch. Um, one of them is I do maintain a financial aid related blog. It's not uh, specific to uh, Valencia. It's open and talks about financial aid in general. And I'm happy to to refer people to that. It's at moneymanblog.com. 
So just the three words, moneymanblog.com. Uh, and you can also feel free to reach me by email, um, which we can certainly put in the show notes if you want to, uh, Doug. I'm happy to take your email or questions or, or other pieces. And I'm on Twitter at Barkowitz. So feel free to find me there. <laughs> Fantastic. I will add your contact information on the show notes page. And Daniel, I genuinely appreciate you sharing some of your insight with me and with us today. Financial aid should not be a mystery. And as you've pointed out a number of times, the open communication and the sharing of information between the registrar's office and financial aid office is a critical component to the success of our students. And as long as we maintain that focus on our students, I think the more we can do to assist them along the process of achieving their educational goals, the better. So thank you again. And I will add in your, uh, the blog information on the show notes page as well. So you can get a link from there. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to, to chat with you today. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Daniel Barkowitz for sharing his financial aid insights with us today. I encourage you to heed his advice and do some outreach to your financial aid office if you aren't doing so already. February is Black History Month. I doubly encourage you to spend some time reading about the history of the Black experience in the United States and celebrating the many wonderful and amazing contributions Black Americans have made and continue to make to our country. Also, hey everybody, there's still a pandemic going on. Wear a mask, and now you might even want to double up on masks. Wash your hands regularly, limit your gatherings, and maintain appropriate physical distancing. Taking care of each other isn't that complicated. I hope this podcast episode finds you well. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.